Welcome to Secret Handshake, the podcast that covers the movies that help you identify your friends and maybe make a few more along the way. Spine number two, 1998's Six String Samurai. The movie about a post-apocalyptic world if the bombs had gone off with guitars, swords, and a guy that wants to be Buddy Holly. Martin, don't touch my guitar. Don't ever touch my guitar. In 1957, the bomb dropped. The last bastion of freedom became a place called Las Vegas, and Elvis was crowned king. Now, his only heir has died, and Vegas needs a new king. One guitar-picking, sword-swinging wanderer is fighting for the throne. And one lone orphan is along for the ride. If you scratch my guitar, I'll kill you. Follow the yellow brick road, homie. Do you know who I am? Nope. You know, we don't get too many new guys around here. A lot of king wannabes on their way to Vegas. You are in Soviet territory! The war is over, baby. It's been over for years. So all you commies, step aside. Neither armies nor bowlers. Nice tuxedo. Nice tuxedo to die. Nor death himself. Don't let the four eyes reach Vegas alive. We'll keep them from their quest. I gotta get a new gig. Welcome back to Secret Handshake. I am joined, as always, by co-host Cody Bouchard yes, and Martin Carlson, the Mattress King of Austin. How are you? We're going to stick with that for a while. Or you forever. Uh, yeah, and you know what? Uh, the best part is that I'm never going to explain it. Never. <laughs> what, I, what I want our listeners to think is that you're some like 6'4", hairy Viking... From Indiana via Sweden, who like they're like the mattress king. That means he's one hundred percent a gigolo who just like crushes forty-seven-year-old uh, Nene on like the regular for money. From the crushes the Nene on the regular for money. All yeah. I say is, where's the lie? Well, that's what I'm saying. Like, are you a high-priced 
prostitute or do you come in and just banging out for like 150 the latter for sure okay yeah it's at least um, you're honest is 150 low um i don't think it's high i've been underselling yeah see anyway um let's talk about movies yeah i'm jacob knight this is secret handshake and this week we have cody's pick of 1998's six string samurai cody tell us why six string samurai well, let me take you back to the uh, far distant time of 2004. Mm-hmm. I was 19 years old and working at a blockbuster video. Uh, one of my coworkers, who was a, a pretty well-versed cinephile, uh, and we'd been working together for a time, uh, knew me well enough, and was like, hey, man, I was, uh, I don't remember how it came up, but he was just like, there's this movie I know of. I think you really like it. You should check it out. So I was like, cool, I will. And on my next opportunity, I went down to like the I Love video where you can find just about anything and everything that's indie and, and non. Wait, did you not have it at Blockbuster? No, we did not have it at Blockbuster. Whoa, weird. I know, right? <laughs> Almost like it was a cult classic. Yeah. Well, uh, I think it's funny that you bring it up immediately in the context of a video store because this is like as soon as you suggested the title in my head video store popped up because i feel like anybody who went to the video store in the late 90s early 2000s like this was a staple of like those uh employee curated cult sections or uh like their employee picks like you always saw six string samurai there yeah those things are i i really love that about independent video stores too i mean i know they're few and far between these days but it really is cool sure. to go in and see just a post-it note on a shelf that says like Jacob's picks and you can just, you know, go down or, or it'll be arranged by director as opposed to genre or things of that. Um, anyhow. Uh, yeah. So he said, you, I think you'll be into this. You should check it out. So I went down and uh, rented it and uh, watched it. I was living in a house at the time with like three other guys and I just watched it in my room by myself and I fucking loved it. I watched it every day for like the next week straight. It was, it was a hundred percent right up my alley at the time. Every day, every day. It was, I, I was, I mean, Good I didn't, mode. I didn't like dedicate, you know, my full attention to it after the first watch, but I just, I just had it on while I was doing other stuff. It was just something you played in the background. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Martin, is this your first time seeing six string samurai? This is my first time. So I, um, but I had a, you're mentioning it was, Video drum video store again. It was always in the cult section, and yeah. not not to the side, to the front. So you'd see that cover, and and I would always like pass by. I said, "Oh, that that looks pretty interesting." But I think it was waiting for an opportunity like this to. I had friends who'd seen it, but no one was that attached to it. Sure. And then to have someone who like this was a friend who this is like close to their heart is an opportunity to watch it. Um, but yeah, I would same thing. I would just see it. And it was for me. It was the the essential cult film just from seeing that cover it looks even the cover looks low budget yeah you know and it looks like that late 90s it was always like next to like blue sunshine it was just always like next to it in this in this one section of the store so yeah blue sunshine a true gnarly 70s a true gnarly film yeah i think we're gonna put that one on the list oh boy (laughs) cody we'll discuss um i have to admit this was my first time seeing Six String Samurai too. This is one of the ones that I uh, have probably been lying about for years, saying, "Oh yeah, I saw that." 
I'm going to wear that as a badge of honor from now until I die. Yeah, so you showed me a movie. When you said on the last episode, you're like, well, it's mostly going to be you guys like showing me stuff. And I was like, well. Is there two of me in the room? That was incredible. I know. I've been studying dutifully just so that I could fucking nail that impersonation for a podcast in the future. Well, I got some debt collectors that I need to give your number to. Yep, just have them call me up. But, Cody, what about uh, this movie? Like, what? Because here's the thing. We pitched each other this podcast, and, like, I don't even think we finished the pitch, and you were just, like, six-string samurai. That's that's my number one pick. That's what I want to do. So why was this your number one pick? Like, what about this movie kept you watching it for, like, a week at a time every – or, like, a day uh, – every day for, like, a week straight? So in reference to why I picked it for the podcast, why I jumped on it so quick, it just really – jump to the forefront of my mind because I just thought it fit. I haven't heard of too many other people that have ever even heard of the movie. Um, I, I don't know it necessarily even to have like a cult following, although it sounds like it does because both of you were aware of it and it was sitting more on the, the forefront of the independent video store shelves. <clears throat> but I think why I love it so much, and I really put this together the other night when we all watched it, was I think at the time I was 19, and a lot of the elements that were in it that I really parsed out this go around is it's – it's very much like a live action anime. Um, it it kind of reminds me of like with all the ADR and just like the the so chill and cool main character who doesn't really give a damn, but then does like at the end of the day. Uh, that kind of reminds me of like a cowboy bebop kind of vibe, and I would, I really dug that. Um, and the martial arts in it. I'm a lifelong martial artist, so that was like oh cool guy with glasses doing jump kicks and stuff this is incredible plus there's katanas and it really also reminded me a lot of like the original uh run of the power rangers like it felt a lot like with the different cuts and like the different monsters and then like the all adr it reminded me a lot of that and i was really into that when i was younger so i think just subconsciously all those things tied together with me especially i think i just said this but i was 19 at the time when i first saw it so it was all on my impressionable young mind and it uh just grabbed a hold of all those of my heartstrings and tugged. This is a 19-year-old's movie, and I don't mean that in any kind of insulting way, but it, like, there's an almost, like, lizard brain... For sure. Uh, ...narrative drive that it's just, like, what's cool? And especially from, like, a 90s perspective is that it's, like, here's... Um, yeah, with all the rockabilly themes. Yeah, all the rockabilly themes in it. You have the the martial arts, which uh, it stars a guy named Jeffrey Falcon, um, who was a Hong Kong stuntman right. for years. Um, he worked in a bunch of like Cynthia Rothrock movies. Um, so he was working in like you know some premier circles with some really great action directors yeah. over in, in Hong Kong. Yeah, he was he was a working guy over there. Yeah, and like. That's the thing is the martial arts in this movie are really fucking good. His technique is awesome. Yeah, and he's really fast and you can tell because apparently like he's, you know, he's a producer, he's a co-writer, um he's the star and I mean like I would be shocked or I wouldn't be shocked I should say to find out if he just choreographed all the the fights and and the violence in it. For sure. Um, because it's really great. It almost has a lone wolf and cub vibe too, because it's it, only it's all set in kind of like a road warrior dystopia, uh, following like you know 
the post-apocalyptic America. Yep. Las Vegas is now the capital. You're mostly in a desert. Water is precious. Elvis is king. King is dead. He was king. He was king and he died. And then his only heir dies. And it's basically his journey to lost, but they call it Lost Vegas. Lost Vegas. Yeah, and it's it's basically it's it's, it's, it's also a stone kind of thing, right? Where it's like whoever comes and plays the good song will yeah. be the new king. It's also a Wizard yeah. of Oz tale. Oh, I didn't think about the, that the, until the, the you just said that. The one dwarf even tells him, you know, follow the yellow brick road, homie. Oh yeah, the Cholo dwarf. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's um, that's another weird touch because it. Did you see uh, the movie uh, The Bad Batch? From yep. a couple of years ago, sure it, it reminded me a lot of that too, because you're in the desert. There's a lot of um, almost like uh, different pockets of ethnicities that different he comes sex. across. Yeah, there's Russians at one point who, mm-hmm. who crawl out of the. There's the the, hills. the the white suburban Americans who are cannibals, right? Who yep. is I I feel is like kind of a note on just uh, the American way of life. Well, it feels also like a callback to Texas Chainsaw a little bit. Like, it's like, here's every, uh, like, apocalyptic um, movie in existence has cannibals, it seems like, because it's like, we. I guess that's how we say that we as human beings resort to our, like, most basic instinct is to, like, eat one another, you know? So, like, um, but it, that also felt like Texas Chainsaw to me, to where it was like... Here, here's this family in the middle of nowhere who's just eating people and still existing, kind of on their own wavelength. But they all have candy. They, it's like it's True. not like they don't have food. They're saving candy to feed to strangers to fatten them up. True. Oh, that's like a Hansel and Gretel thing, right? You know. Yeah, it had a very. Um, it was very episodic, and we talked about how we can get this later, but how it took them forever to film this movie. And you could tell it's like it has a very kind of disjointed feel. It's like this is where the scene where we shot with the family. Yeah. For a weekend. And then we went over and did the astronaut scene with these guys walking walking yeah. through um, when we had them. Um, yeah, very Texas Chainsaw. Very the, like, yeah. what, the windmill people. The windmill people. Well, it's kind of like when you think about, I always say this is pre The Road, the book and the movie, but it's the idea of like cannibalism is the one line you don't cross. Sure. Like once you've gone that, you're no longer, you know, to quote MacArthur, you're not carrying the fire, right? Otherwise, because you're still good if you're not eating people, basically. Right, but there'd still been movies with cannibals and like underground sex before that, because I mean, like even going back to like Soylent Green as people, you know, um, or uh, something like Don Johnson, uh, Boy and his that, Dog, uh, yeah, Boy and His Dog with the the LQ Jones movie, to where there's even that whole underground society who's essentially rebuilt like a. Uh, kind of almost like stage play version of like 50s Americana to where they all exist, but you find out it's really like a death cult the entire time. And they all want Don Johnson so that he can inseminate their women and keep them going. That That is a fucked up movie. It's like a darker version of Hell Comes to Frogtown. Oh, that's a good... I love Hell Comes to I Frogtown. Love, I love that movie. Have you seen that, Cody? Uh... No, but I've I've listened to the How Did This Get Made podcast about it. It's yeah. I mean it's it's a it's a trip. One of the great Roddy Piper movies. He's man, he was awesome. How R. many R. was P. he in? Like three? Oh, he was in quite a few. No, he was in more. Yeah, because you I have, know like they live. You have they live, and then he was in a couple Shapiro Glickenhaus uh, productions. He was in 
two with Billy Blanks that are really good. I'm blanking on one of the names, but the other one Wait, is back Ty- in Tybo action. Billy Blanks? Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah, because Billy Blanks had like a run in the early 90s where he was in a bunch of movies, and he's actually... Last Boy Scout as the killer at the beginning. Exactly, yeah. Last Boy Scout. Spoiler alert. Um, and well, he's the, For he's a 25-year-old film. He's the one who kills himself on the field. Yep, he has um, a gun in his, uh, in his pants. Ain't life a bitch. <laughs> Just blows his brains out. What a fucking dark, nihilistic movie that one is. It's um, and this I don't want to go too far on this tangent, but I have a friend who believes that when he thinks of Bruce Willis, he thinks more of that character in that film, not Die Hard. Think about Die Hard Three is basically a sequel to Last Boy Scout. Like that, that John McClane is a John McClane. This is too far of a tangent to I, get off of. But I, I actually do too. Yeah, like uh, Die Hard with a Vengeance. No, um, Last Boy Scout. Like I think I've watched Last Boy Scout as much, if not more, than Die Hard throughout the years. Like that was a Jacob Knight household classic. It's, and we're going to have my buddy Bo Farrell on here for Manhunter. So yeah. he, but he's the one who has this whole thesis about John McClane and we could talk about then as well. So, all right. So we, but we do got to get back. To <laughs> yes. I, I apologize. Back, back to the, to the main vein. Um, but I mean, there is something that struck me about this movie, um, that I really connected with while watching it for the first time is that it almost feels like an amalgamation of, and a way that you can trace back the history of some of the major cult movies over time, because you have, you know, Jeffrey Falcon's character and the kid as they, they, they traverse the desert towards Las Vegas. And you could tie that all the way back to um, uh, the lone wolf and cub Japanese pictures, or, I mean, the other one that, that really kind of called to mind, especially once you have, Jeffrey Falcon, he's kind of uh, toting around this tattered umbrella, is uh, El Topo, the Alejandro uh, Jodorowsky movie. Um, and then you obviously, you know, you have the road warrior because he runs into all of these different kind of desert clans along the way. I was thinking it was more uh, Bad Max than it was Road Warrior just because he had the, the kid and the different you know, well, like really wild sex of humanity. Well, the thing about Mad Max, though, is that, like, when you revisit those original uh, three Mad Max movies, is that, like, the first Mad Max, civilization still exists. Yeah, 100% like, still intact. It's, like... It's it's not... It's it's barely dystopian. Yeah, exactly. It, and that's more of almost, like, a straight-ahead revenge picture than anything right. else. It's about a guy, his family gets killed, and he goes after these crazy, like, motorists. Yeah. Yeah, bikers. And, like, gets his revenge. Um but also like stuff like pulp fiction you know from the 90s because i mean even though you're you're tracing uh these dystopian films um with a little bit of like alex cox and repo man and like the punk rock scene like straight to in. hell is like i got all over this movie yeah straight to hell is a good uh reference point for that one um walker would be another yep. one alex cox is weird like kind of revisionist acid Western, let's say, but this movie very much belongs to the nineties because the entire thing is scored by the red Elvises. This, I guess we could call it like a Marxist swing band. (laughs) Brian Tower, is he, was he part of the red Elvises? I don't know. Cause he did the score and they did like the, Oh, that's the right. Separate. Brian Tyler does the score. Yeah. So you had that Bubba hook. First thing I hear is that this sounds like Bubba Hotep. And you see the name pop up. You're like, 
yeah. well, there you go. Brian Tyler, who would go on to you know work with everybody from like Don Coscarelli to Rob Zombie to every Marvel uh, film, the Marvel movies. <laughs> yeah, like that dude has had a career and a half. Um, but what's crazy to me is that this movie very much belongs to the '90s because it's when you look at like the independent cinema that came out of the nineties, you had that weird boom, everything from Pulp Fiction to like John Favreau swingers that used either surf rock or swing rock in some way, just like this movie ends up doing as well. So like, and and then Lynch had a whole thing too, where he's playing the kind of music that battle Menti would sometimes do. Yeah. Or wild at heart. Wild Wild at heart has the entire, uh, Elvis like lip sync uh, sequence with Nick Cage and Laura Dern in the middle of that club. Yep, and of course he finally sings the end to her when he's all beat shit. You mm, know what it's, a movie! I love it. Yeah, Al Pacino, what a picture! <laughs> uh, just talking about the Red Elvises and their their score of it all. I it's another thing that I uh, neglected to mention earlier, and one of the other heartstrings of mine that it tugged just the way that the music kind of drives the picture forward. Like it, it, it sets the pacing in so many of the scenes and it, it kind of feels like, again, just kind of uh, like a live action anime to me. And that really, I kept dr- calling drew me it in. a hipster El Topo <laughs> because it, it feels like the hipster take on El Topo to me to where it's just a guy, his, this kid, them traveling the desert to this uh, end point with Las Vegas and that's the movie. There's just no, he never becomes like a revolutionary figure like an El Topo, I suppose. So there goes my whole thesis. Well, what was his real in game though? Like he's such a, a loner and he seems to have almost like a disdain for any sort of surviving society. Like why would he want to go be king of it all? I don't know. That's a good question. It seems like he... He definitely has actually I mean, like in a lot of ways. I mean, like, obviously, like Road Warrior is the the quickest. Um, That's like the is that the ultimate touchstone for like the post apocalyptic movie? Like I feel I, like was it, it the is, first? Right? It's not the first, but I think it's the ultimate one. It's like the one that perfected, at least in like our pop culture vernacular, that that aesthetic. I, I think that's it. I think that like anything that came after like you are referencing road warrior, whether yeah. you're going in a different direction, like even the Rover, which is like this toned down more like Mad Max, but it's still like, it's a more realistic road warrior. Like you're, you're conversing with that film. Well, and I think even David Mashad was like, Oh, this is my road warrior. You know, like he, he was pretty open about like, we're making it or even something like well, you brought up Cormac McCarthy earlier with the road. Like when you, you know, the book is basically this sparse, uh, there's no detail. It allows your brain to essentially fill in all the details. But then you watch um, the uh, movie adaptation with Vigo, and it that movie is very much playing on like the gloomy, uh, post-apocalyptic kind of modern companion to the Road Warrior. It's not desert set like that film, but it's, it's, it's still, wet and it's forests. It's and... gross. There's cannibals. Well, and the you know. I don't got again on a tangent, but you know, I think the film doesn't work because what makes the book work so well is the language is so beautiful. Yeah. And the movie is just it kind of becomes a generic like man and his son. But again, you had that similar thing with the, the boy and you know, the boy, boy and, and the older dog. the boy and the older man. Oh yeah. Walking through the wasteland together. Um I really like the road, the movie. Um it's a tough movie. It's not a fun movie to sit through. 
after the after the proposition, which is one of my favorite movies of like the century. Yeah, because it's the same director. It's, right? it's John Hillcoat. Yeah, and Nick Cave's buddy, and I was like, this is gonna be. I was I was waiting, and they kept pushing him back the release of the road. Yeah, and I was with my buddy Mike, and we finally saw it. And I didn't dis, I didn't hate it, but I just read the book, and it just I wanted more from John Hillcoat. And um, but poor you, poor yeah. Pittsburgh man being the stand-in for like the end <laughs> of all humanity. Yeah, for once Detroit was like yes. Yeah, they're like, what's the shittiest fucking place in America? Oh, Pittsburgh. Yeah, just it, it just said it there. It's like that old line from Videodrome. <laughs> <laughs> Pittsburgh. Yeah. But no, but I mean, but back to Road Warrior, I think that that's the quickest reference for this film. And you have um, the selfishness of every, it's basically everyone out for himself, right? So with, with yeah. Max, it's like his car. He like fetishizes his car. And with this, it's the guitar. And, the, and it's like, don't touch my, like you said, don't touch my guitar. Yeah. And this is, because it's like, this is like, I mean, geez, this is his home. Like, it's his guitar, and it's what he's taking to... He uses it as a pillow in the desert. Yep. Well, yeah, for something he loves so much, he beats the shit out of it. He, at one like, point, dr- draws the sword out of it, sets it the base of it on the ground, and just lets it go so it can free fall over onto its face. And I was like, what are you... He sets the kid on it later on, and the kid uses it as a sled. Yep. Now, I'm going to ask a question that could be seen as insulting. Um, so, apologies in advance. I like but, that you're making eye contact with Martin. But everything... Well, this is actually more towards you. Damn it. Uh, or actually towards both of you. like, Because it's one thing that I, I struggled with while watching it and have struggled with even after like thinking about it and thinking about what I wanted to talk about with this podcast is everything we're even discussing right now feels like reference points and like aesthetics and almost like a, a purely the movie's almost purely operating on like a cinematic uh, veneer of like what the director thought was cool. Is there anything happening beneath the surface on this movie? I didn't get this is my first viewing. I didn't get anything. Me neither. Um, I really enjoyed watching it with you guys and I liked like I had fun watching it. But it's kind of the conversation people have about Stranger Things. It's what is it beyond a Stephen King and stand, you know Stand by Me reference? Right. And is there it's more a pastiche? Is, is it all? Yeah, is it all pastiche? Um, on one hand, I think this is, but it's so. It feels sincere to me. That's the yes. thing. Is it, it films today? You see, they're pastiche. Somewhat feel cynical sometimes. They feel this like guy, corporate synergy or like a cash in of it, or like they're like, what's popular now? Uh, the 80s and John Carpenter, what do we do? Oh, we make a thing that references the 80s, John Carpenter, Stephen King, and like synth music. You know, like that's what the kids are into these days. And then you put it on Netflix and it makes $8 billion in merchandising at Target. So this felt like all the things that this director and the, and the, the main star like. Yeah. And it was them sitting down saying, here's all the things we love. Let's put them in one movie. And which is cool. I also think that it's important to note that this came very quickly after the director, a guy named uh, Lance uh, Mungia graduated from college. It was released within two years of his graduation from college. And this feels like a first movie. Like it feels like a guy was like, I have this cool idea for a film in my head. It's been gestating in every film class that I ever took. Let's make it. Let's get this $2 million budget, which I mean, 
you see every single red cent of that two million on Hey-o. screen. It looks awesome. But at the same time, I don't know that there's a whole lot going on under the hood, let's say. Yeah, for, uh, for sure. It definitely is a, a surface level tale. I don't think there's a lot to be taken out of it. Um, and to be perfectly honest with you, you know, I, I enjoyed it a ton when I was 19. I think I came upon it again, maybe five or six years ago, and I still really enjoyed it. But on our last viewing, like I enjoyed the first two acts, but then the third act really kind of fell flat for me. It's really for a movie that only runs like what ninety two minutes. Yeah, it felt a lot longer. It felt pacing kind is of, woo. yeah, it felt kind the, of long. The pacing's great for the first third, two thirds of the movie, but after that, it drops off pretty pretty starkly. Now we're gonna bring it back to this just being a Stranger Things diss track. Uh, <laughs> I'm in. <laughs> but um. Cody, do you have anything else you want to note before we dive right into questions? No, I think that's pretty much most of the things I was milling over about it. All right. We're going to take a quick break, and we're going to come back with our usual questions. Stay tuned. Cross that line, kid. Cut your little teddy bear in half. Last kid that crossed that line had to summon up the spinach monster with my rock and roll magic. Spinach monster grabbed him, pulled him underground, made him eat spinach all day. Rumor has it, kid. He's still there. We're back with eight questions about Six String Samurai from 1998. Cody, we're going to flip it to you since you're writing the questions this week, since it's your pick. Yeah. So what do you got for us? All right, I'm going to send the first one over to Martin. Cool. Uh, Martin, what is your Cold War post-apocalypse weapon? Is it the katana, the bow and arrow, or the bowling pin blade? Definitely katana. Um, I just think I remember that era. Well, there's still those guys who just want to – be in an anime and that was me like in middle school like I wanted to have a katana blade and walk around and be fucking cool and to to this movie to have like the guitar with the blade in it that's one thing that's very very cool wait you wanted you loved anime and wanted to walk around with a katana did you have a trench coat I did not I'm in the same boat and I did not have a trench coat but what I did have was a cardboard box that was about three feet tall that was just filled with like plastic and different toy swords up until I was like probably 16 I was big into super soakers. I had a lot of super soakers growing up. I we my brother my brother and I were very serious on toy guns, like for like airsoft everything. Yeah. So actually, if we if gun were an option, it'd be gun. We were pretty gun heavy. Um, no guns in this movie. Yeah. Um, Not a oh, single one. Well, no, 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 no. The Russians. Plenty, the Russians had plenty of guns, but they didn't have any bullets. They hadn't had yeah, bullets for years. Yeah, but you know what? They crazy. did have plenty of artillery left over for yeah, some reason. That that, that scene. Uh, I want to know how much 
that cost and how it was choreographed. That's where most of the two million went. Yeah, there's that heavy artillery scene, and it's it looks awesome. Things are fucking blowing up. He's like slicing up dudes and Russian. like uniform, like military. They might have real stunt players there doing like jumps, like from explosions and stuff. They might have got a real stunt team out there. There were actual like big fireball explosions a few times in this movie when they were leaving the gas station for one. And yeah, you're right. They love to blow shit up in this movie. I mean, mean, wouldn't you respect first time director? You want to blow some shit up, dude. I fifth time director. If you let me blow something up, I'm going to blow it up. That's why I love uh, Halloween 2, or this is Halloween plus explosions. Like, I think it'll blow up an ambulance. <laughs> like, there's a lot of shit explodes in a, sl- you know, a slasher film like Halloween 2. I don't like Halloween 2 that much. I love Halloween 2, but that's for another day. Yeah, that's a totally different podcast. Yeah. We could probably do an entire podcast on Halloween 2. Wait, are we talking about Rick Rosenthal's Halloween 2? Yeah, Rick Rosenthal's Halloween 2. I like Rob Zombie's Halloween 2 way better. Back to Six String Samurai. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to do a Halloween 2 episode. Oh, I'm I'm ready. We're going to do a Halloween 2 off. All right. Uh, back to our question. Wait, what are my choices for this fucking stupid weapon thing? Uh, <laughs> which would be your uh, Cold War post-apocalypse weapon, the katana, the bow and arrow, or the bowling pin blade? Can I use the cholo midget as one? Like, what if I use He, he wasn't small... weaponized. He, he was targetized. He Wait, got, I can't he got say midget, up. can I? Like little person. Bad, little person. Yeah. Either way, I think using a little person as a weapon is probably offensive to somebody. Terminology is more important, though. Yeah. It depends action. on how you That's use them. True. If you're using them as an assist, like as some sort of like a, like a shot put throw that they, they, they then get to like launch at your opponent with their fist flying through the air and do some kind of like you know, big guy, little guy combo move, then I think it's appropriate. Like but a, but a if you're, Wolverine move? Yeah, like exactly. But if you're grabbing shit. them by their ankles and swinging them around as a baseball bat, then I think it's uh, a little disrespectful. But that's what I want to do. Well, then, then that falls under disrespectful, yeah. Mm, can I still stick with my answer? Absolutely. What were the other ones? What's the, I'll give you my runner-up answer. Katana, bow and arrow, bowling pin blade. I can't fire a bow and arrow for shit, so that's out. Okay. Uh, I totally forgot about the whole bowling. Uh, the like, three guys crew. with the, the the simultaneous coin flipping and yeah, you know what? Walter Sobchak would fuck all those guys up. But that's another <laughs> that's another whole different podcast. I just um, like when they all three get taken out. There's the actual sound of like a a, a strike on a bowling alley. That's true. It's kind of cutesy. It's on um, the nose. I'm gonna go with katana one, bowling pin two. Bow and arrow, I wouldn't even touch because I wouldn't know how to operate it. All right. Fair game. How about you, Cody? Katana all day long. Hell yeah. It's it's either that or bow and arrow. And it, and bow and arrow is if I'm <laughs> really comfortable like keeping an eye on people at a far distance. I'm, not, you, I'm not going into that bar with a bow and arrow. I'll go into the bar with a katana. Well, and you love martial arts. Like, you've practiced and studied martial arts for years. Yes. So, I mean, this all tracks. Indeed. Yeah. Anyway, what's question two? Question two. Uh, which scene from this movie would you like use for an antithesis from or just take directly to put in like one of your films? Antithesis was the wrong word there, but we're going to disregard yeah, it. Yeah, I was like, I don't even know what you're saying at yeah. this point. What would I basically use as basically my reference point? Yeah. Like, would you take the scene directly to put it in one of your films or would you, or what, what like scene would you use? if you were just totally use? QTing it? 
and yeah. just lifting from it to use. Um, Don't forget the whole underground spinach monster, uh, people coming back from the dead, or the, or representation of the underworld see, level. But, you know, I'm going to save my commentary on that part of the movie for my uh, double feature pick later. Okay. Um, honestly, probably the mortar sequence. I mean, that sequence is really... On any level, it's really impressive. Yeah, um, it was fun. And it's just, it's weird. It kind of comes out of nowhere. Uh, it's the part that really reminded me of Alex Cox and Walker the most. Um, and just kind of as Martin was pointing out is that like the technical know-how that it would take to pull that sequence off is it's pretty high. It's pretty impressive. So I would go with that one. So the scene that I would basically take out and put in my own film. Yep. Is that what you're saying? Either put in your own film or like use as the thesis point for your own original idea. Um, honestly. So watching this, I've been had this idea for like a kind of a hot rod feature, um, 50s, 60s hot rod film. Oh, I thought you meant Lonely Islands hot rod. And I was like, now we're, now <laughs> I, we're speaking to each other. I also, cool beans, please, cool, please, cool I also love that movie. So just don't get me wrong. But yeah. I've had a hot rod idea and I like the... That is 100% an upcoming secret handshake. Well, that episode. sounds good. Um, yeah. my, brother, two. My, my brother Ooh. loves that movie. Um, but I think the early on in the film where he shows up, uh, when we meet the, uh, the pin pals... And and it's at this this like way station where you have musicians who are kind of all on their way yeah. out to Las Vegas. Um, I think I was just like the the simple idea of like I think one thing this film has down is the world building. Like I think it's the simple idea of everyone's on their way to Las Vegas to play for the role of the king. I think it gets lost in the film, but that idea I think it's really fucking good. Yeah, it it loses importance along the way really quickly yeah in the favor of like the episodic kind of nature of it it's almost no pun intended a double-edged sword it is and oh, I, I get but i think i would for me i just i think you, baby i would take the basic idea i think of just like this post-apocalyptic world or like a uh, alternate reality where the 50s never ended i just i like that idea and i think i'd take that and kind of some like Streets of Fire shit. Actually, Streets of Fire is like my number one reference for the one I've been trying to write. Like that's exactly yeah. it. I mean, it's one I of love the greatest movie. movies of all time. Walter Hill, God bless him, and just also that idea of like they never even give you the world building in that film. It's just like this is how it is. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just this kind of almost Anton first design looking downtown with diners Willem and Defoe. cars and never. The fifties never ended. Well, and they set it all up just with like another time, another place. Once, yeah, once put on time, you're just in it. Yep. So that's what I would go with, Cody. Wait, Cody, what's yours? What, which one would you lift from directly? I think it'd be easiest to take off of the bar scene, especially like the <laughs> the super weird. Like, what is happening when he goes back to the bedroom with that woman? There isn't any currency that I can see in the film except for the coins that the pen guys are flipping. So, is she a prostitute or is she just into the yeah, guy? He's a prostitute. And then, yeah. Well, you would know. Yeah, I mean, uh, recognize it, it, in in the business, um, even if there's no mattress currency, king of there, Austin, there are deals that are made um, that are beyond money. What is um, what would you say that you've hypothetically been bartered for sex? Like, what has somebody offered you? Like, one of your forty-seven-year-old nays is like, they come up, they're like, Martin, I'm a little short this week. 
daddy didn't give me enough allowance. What did you trade for? Ice cream cake. Carvel? Carvel ice cream cake. Damn. I like that you knew that off the jump, Matt. You know what? I would I, do I'd, I would do anything. I'd fuck a lonely housewife for a fudgy the whale. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> so What's the next what, question, what's Cody? What's the next question, Cody? <laughs> <laughs> Milfs for whales. Yeah. All right. Um well, I guess we kind of already went into this on the last one, but this is, uh, Jacob, what did this film most remind you of? Mm, I'm saving that for my double feature. All right. There's one movie in particular that's from the eighties. It's very obscure. I actually had to track down a videotape to watch it before we recorded tonight. Um, Ooh. That I love. I I'm love intrigued. to fucking death. And I would double feature this. And as I was watching, I was like, oh, yeah, this is it. This is the one. Um, It was going to be my double feature, but I, 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 I'm switching that over. But in terms of the film, this reminds me the most. I was actually Cyborg with uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme. Ooh, that makes me so happy. Um, and which little in fact was uh, used all the sets for what was supposed to be Master of the Universe Part 2. That's true. Um, and when that didn't happen, they just, same director, Albert Pian. And, uh, I can't believe that movie didn't make it. I mean, after Skeletor pops up at the end, it says, I'll be back. Yeah, when they like ran out of money and they had to shoot with like two lights for the, yeah, the final battle with uh, Skeletor and He-Man. Um, we'll get on a Dolph Lundgren kick another day. That's like a big secret handshake oh, thing a, for me. It's a whole rabbit hole. But um, honestly, Cyborg, it felt the the whole the whole vibe of it. The budget actually seemed quite similar. I know Cyborg didn't have a lot of money. Yeah. Um, the the wandering nature of it. Uh, they both felt at moments expensive and at moments really fucking cheap. Mm-hmm. So that's why I thought of Cyborg. Dope. What movie does this hit or like reference from the most for you? I would say Mad Max because you you got the small voices kid. You got the, the lone wanderer coming into a new community with his own agenda and business to solve. And he ends up taking. Oh, so down. you're saying Road Warrior? Yeah. Road Warrior or Mad Max? Is it Mad Max with the Thunderdome? No, that's. There's three different films. You have Mad yeah. Max, then Road Warrior, and the Thunderdome's the third one. Yeah. I thought Road Warrior was the first one. Second one. No, that's the that's second. That's, that's why, why we, we were confused earlier. Yeah. yeah, earlier you were like, oh, but okay. then you got it right. You were like, yeah, I, it, you know, society has not fallen yet. Right. So you know what you're talking about. I I'm feel just like mixing you're just mixing One with Tina Turner and Thunderdome. That's the third one. Which is the one with the little kid that doesn't talk? The second one, Road second Warrior. One, Road Warrior. Okay, so that's with what I'm talking about. Yeah, the, f- the, the feral kid. Yeah. yeah he, he throws the razor boomerang. Yeah, so that's what I'm talking about. He comes in, he's got a kid he doesn't want to deal with, and he ends up toppling the, the powers that be of that particular region. Yeah. Yeah, so there. That You've one. been fucked up this whole podcast. Yeah, man. <laughs> no wonder. All right. What's All right. the next question? Uh, next question. So I, I'm going to expand. What my original question was was simply like, what would you change? But I'm going to expand it a little further based on our conversation. It felt like we were all kind of in agreement that the film kind of tracked for the first like act, maybe two acts, and then it fell off in the third. What would you change from the fall off point? Do you think that like could save it or you know give it a little more depth? Not that the film needs to be saved. I still enjoy it, but um, I would try to. Here's the thing I kept thinking about. 
while while we were watching it and it didn't bother me but it was what made me later start thinking about the idea of like is anything actually going on under the hood of this movie is why the soviets why are they in this movie because the rest are almost like hipster touchstones you have the red elvises you have the bowlers you have because the whole premise of the post apocalypse we haven't even is gotten that, to is that the soviets dropped drop right we haven't yeah, is that the soviets dropped the bomb and that's the whole reason yeah well i mean but my point is this is that like um like here's a question like he's being pursued by death the right. entire time which we haven't even brought up until this point mm-hmm. um and death is I feel like we have a much, habit of leaving out main characters. We yeah. left out the <laughs> we, we left out Linda Haynes <laughs> in the entire Thunder. last podcast. But like death in this one, uh, it was another thing that made me think about in terms of like not necessarily cult cinema, but just cult cult media in general. Is it reminded me of the Dark Tower a lot and how Buddy Holly is essentially the uh, the gunslinger. Yeah. Death is the man in black mm-hmm. and you know he's pursuing him across the desert, across the wastelands. Um but switched around. But in, yeah, in exactly. And that in that movie or in that book, you know, Roland is pursuing the man in black. There's a movie. But well, we don't talk about that. But um who is never made. Just the yeah, books. It doesn't exist. But um here's the thing that I kept wondering is like is death in the movie to pursue him for any reason beyond the fact that death looks like Slash from Guns N' Roses? Yeah, he, he represents um, like new rock and roll, and that's supposed to be pushing out. Like, well, here we go. Now you're hitting stuff. on you're actually hitting on something. Like, bounce off of this. Like, when you're talking about, do you think that this movie is like a commentary about the evolution of like rock and roll and pop music? Well, or? the way that that isn't completely track with the entire plot of the film is that the bomb was dropped in 1950 something, so we've been carrying on from that lifestyle. Like, where did the electric guitar, the 19 19- 90s electric guitar that death is carrying like come from and where did the idea that of you know new modern rock and roll and also death is in a a, a, a representation of slash of guns and roses like, 80s like metal. yeah yeah how did any of this progress past when the bomb was dropped if civilization collapsed yeah well and that's the, that's the thing that i was trying to figure out is like does any of this even have anything to say about the kind of pop touchstones that it's hitting upon but i guess my question with the, the Soviets, it would have made more sense is if Somehow a bomb was dropped in in the eighties, and uh, <laughs> the buddy buddy's character was more you know a member of Poison, and Death was Kurt Cobain. Yeah, I mean that would be interesting. I would watch that. Yeah, <laughs> but I mean, and and that's kind of where I'm going with like the Soviets is that like you know you watch Red Dawn, and in that movie, that movie's very much for all of its action 80s brat pack R.I.P. Swayze it's um, all very much representative of John Milius's very right wing viewpoint about how we're going to be invaded by the communists one day we need to arm ourselves become uh, almost like you know militia it's the revolution all over again. Yeah, it's 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 what even some nut jobs like Alex Jones and stuff believe today in that you have to be ready for the incoming world war when like the Soviets come. Like you watch Red Dawn and you're like, okay, this is a point of view. This is a political manifesto to a certain degree. But like in Six String Samurai, the Soviets just seem to be the Soviets because 
like there's no real cold war anxiety in the movie there's no there's nothing deeper than that it's just like oh well why wouldn't it be the soviet you know what i'm saying yeah like it it is definitely just a service level plug-in that's that is honestly the thing that i would change the most is that i would try to earlier you said it was the scene you loved the most no 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 no, no. not the actual scene i just mean the through line of like i would try and flesh out one of these ideas i would make it a commentary on like the the pop touchstones that it's hitting upon or i would try and uh, at least maybe elaborate upon some of the political viewpoints that it might hold but i don't think that it's interested in any of that stuff i think it's just cool for the sake of cool which i mean like we said earlier it's a movie for 19 year olds like yeah. that makes sense absolutely it actually in that way it reminds me of uh southland tales where oh geez um, watch your goddamn mouth so um, oh my god yeah i thought it was anyway i i think it's a film that I'll, I'll shy away from Southland Tales, but uh, for this film, it does feel like there is not a through line. It does feel like there's a lot of random ideas that he had in terms of, oh, this would be a cool group. This would be a cool group. Yeah. But like, and I don't think a film has to like say something, but like to connect the world that why it is the way it is in terms of, in terms of world building. Again, the thing I like about the film is that initial idea of these different musicians all traveling to become the new king. Like, yeah. if that's your idea, stick with it. But then it's just like these random things i think if you had a second writer come in with this first draft and say i see some elements here that i could connect and they could and someone could do that yeah i think this feels like a first draft to me or a scene or it feels like they had elements they could get and do and they put them together yeah or it was like you know because in the director and like the the star slash co-screener writer slash co-producer like it's very much like them making a movie that's you're a Hong Kong star. I'm into like this nineties indie movie. I'm straight out of college. Let's make a thing together. And that's what it feels like is that it's not really fleshed out beyond that. Well, that could also follow the line. Like you were saying, the guy was what uh, made this two years out of college. Like yeah. this, this could have just been like, Hey, I secured some funding. I have a general idea and you've got some skills. Let's throw this thing together. Yeah. Next question. Next question. Uh, Martin. Yes. When do you kick the kid to the curb? Really early. Um, uh, I think the kid is fucking obnoxious the whole time. Um, aren't they always though? And I don't mean but that. But he enough. saves the guy's life multiple times. I don't care. He, he 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 is the one that gets every single mode of transportation that they take. Like here's a here's a. A question for this and I'm being 100% honest are there any good sidekick kids uh, yeah see what I'm saying Anakin Skywalker in the Phantom Outside Menace of like you know <laughs> Haley Joe Osmond in the Sixth Sense those aren't sidekick kids I'm talking about like like you have like uh, outside of like Shogun Assassin and like the Lone Wolf and Cub movies that kid's awesome I, I got one, but it, it plays it plays into my pairing later. So okay, I mean, like even Thunderdome kind of sucks once you get into the 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 Lost Bo- Boys sequence in that movie. Like, think about it. What good sidekick kids? A lot of people hate Terminator Two 
Well, not hate Terminator Two, but they who hates they, Terminator they, Two. But I, that's I'm I'm sorry. I will revise what I'm saying. Thank you. But I'm saying they ding Terminator Two because of Eddie Furlong. It's funny because that's an interesting film for me because being his age or like a little bit younger when that came out. Like that was my way into the movie, you know. I was like, "Oh, cool! How cool is it to like be on an adventure?" Kind of like uh, these guys are hacking ATM machines, or like the kid in like you know uh, Jonathan Brandis and the Sidekicks. These films that were about being the kid who got to be with the action star. Yeah. Or Last Action Hero. I think you know even taking it a step further. At that last time, a- Last Action Hero might be the ultimate example. Of this. It is. Th- that's the whole point of the movie, yeah. right? Is like to be a, a kid and. Look up to and an idolize like an action star, and like to be Arnold brought into and to be yeah. brought in the movie. And I actually really like the movie a lot. I but, love that movie, but I think like I watching it now, like with a little bit more objectivity, Edward Furlong is so fucking annoying in Terminator Two. I don't think so. He's I think one he of is. the few kids that like I get the complaint a little bit, but I love all the father son relationship sure. stuff with him, like. I'm. I have no shame in admitting that I cry at the time at the end of Terminator Two every time. Like that part where he asks him not to lower himself in the lava, like kills me. No, and I think that's. But that's a testament, I think, to like kills Arnold Cameron too. being a good fucking writer. Yeah, Cameron's like, amazing. He's f- well. There's another great example, like Aliens. Like a lot of people don't like Newt that much. I think she, I actually like Newt a lot in that film, um, but it is. But again, both those films are about these. I like, think the third parents. film would have done much better if Newt was in it. That's a, yeah, I'll not even. <laughs> oh boy! But the yeah, I think. But I mean, obviously, Cameron in both those films has these these parental issues, right? Of your hero mm-hmm. learning to be a parent to a lost kid. Yeah, well, there's you know? even that whole like in the director's cut of Aliens. There's that whole excise subplot. Her daughter like, died when she she's yeah. been gone for fifty seven years, and her daughter died of old age. Yeah, and now it's like. This is my second chance to be a mother. And that's a big divisive. A nude was supposed to be like the same age that her daughter was when she like ship when she when, left when she went on yeah, her mission. Yeah. Pretty yeah. much. Yeah. Um, but I mean, that's a divisive kind of talking point for people when they, they talk about, do they like the theatrical cut or the director's cut of aliens more? So we're not going to get into that. I know. I, I that's a whole thing. You start. I saw your face. Tangent, I got really excited. Tangent. But going up I think on a my point kind of stands there is that like there are, aren't that many good kids sidekicks. Like usually once you introduce a kid to the narrative, it sucks bad. Yeah. I would quick answer though for this one. I'd have lost the, I thought we were really going to lose him early on, but yeah. the kid was just going to be that first scene where they're running through the, like the wheat field or whatever. Yeah. When the kid's mom gets killed. Yeah. I thought, Oh, he's just going to like save this kid's life and then go off on his merry way. It's going to be that kind of episodic thing. And I was like, Oh shit. No, yeah. In the scene where he, uh, when the car breaks down and he's going to leave the kid for the fourth time, I guess, at this point, and he just walks off over the, the road horizon and the kid's scooping up water and pouring it in the radiator and the three, uh, I don't know, ravenous guys or whatever are running up and he decides to turn around. I was like, why? What just happened? There was no actual explanation for the change in motivation. But, I mean, it, it progresses the plot. So yeah. yeah, it's but that's this whole film, right? Like, right, there, right, right. there is no... I don't think it's even fair to ask for motivation in this movie because it makes it pretty clear from frame one it's not what they're going for. You know, it's like it's the, the rules it sets out are kind of very random. Yeah, it has a randomness to it. 
There's I don't, even barely a plot. Barely, yeah. Yeah, like it's it's just a series of events. More the, than the plot anything. is getting the main character from point A to point B. Yeah, but he even forgets big. even forgets that though. Well, it's There's sort of yeah. you forget where he's going. But it's almost no, like, he keeps going to Las Vegas the whole way. It's 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 a linear plot. Yeah, I mean, it's almost like video game plotting. It's just yeah, you know, you, you, yeah. You, I'll agree with that. You reach the new, the next checkpoint. You, he fights like a new group or a new boss or something, and then yeah. he moves on, and you just keep getting until the end of the game. Frankly, mm-hmm. all right. What's the next question? Next question: Double feature. What do we double feature this with? Who's going first? Go for it, Jacob. Um, my pick. It's funny that you bring up Albert Pune because my pick is. Uh, 1985's Radioactive Dreams. Never seen it. Um, it's hard to see. That's the thing. Um, it was Pune's second movie he made after Sword and the Sorcerer. Uh, it's about... Man, describing this... Like, when I was watching it, it's weird to call a movie that's both highly derivative and uh, reminds you of, like, say, even, like, Six String Samurai... Um, singular, but this movie to me really is singular in a few ways. It's about two kids uh, who are locked in a bomb shelter. Um, all of the nukes are launched in 1986. Um, and flash forward 15 years later to 2001, they've aged to right in their very early 20s. And they finally uh, decided that they were going to journey out beyond the bomb shelter that they've lived in just with the two of them. And all they've, they've lived on is comic books and uh, like noir or like dime store paperbacks. A lot of like, you know, Raymond Chandler type stuff um, to the point that their names are Philip and Marlo. And Philip is uh, played by um, uh, John Stockwell from I just watched Christine, Christine yesterday. Yeah. From Christine, and he would also work with Pune again in a movie called Dangerously Close, which is a really good movie. And then he would actually go on to have a decent career as a director, making stuff to like uh, Into the Blue, yeah, um, um, Into the Blue, and then uh, Blue Crush, yep, Blue Crush, and then Dark. He had a whole ocean thing, Dark, uh, dark Water with uh, or Dark Tide with um, dark Harley, Tide. Harley Harley Berry, yeah, yeah. Um, but like he uh, plays Philip, and then Michael Dudikoff plays Marlo. And Michael Dudikoff, it's a really weird performance from him because like um, Stockwell gets all of like the hard, the movie has like a hard boiled voiceover of him being like, and then we journeyed out and it was going to be something that changed our lives forever. And you're like, oh, okay. Um, But then uh, Dudikoff's role is really weird. It's almost like he's one of the kids from Alan uh, Parker's Bugsy Malone, but he's just trapped in an adult's body. Like he's doing this really weird, nasally, almost like Mickey Rourke voice the whole time. Like, Hey man, I hope we meet some dames along the way in this. And he wants to be a dancing dick as he calls it. They're dressed the entire time in the full on fifties, noir detective like style, like Stockwell's got like a fedora on, um, Dudikoff has like one of those newspaper boy caps on. They have the shirt, the tie, the, the, the overcoat, like all that stuff. And they set out in a convertible across the wasteland and they meet everybody from, you know, these new wave 
punker like raiders on on motorcycles to there's disco mutants um to there's uh ra- there's basically two con men slash uh kidnappers slash murderers uh who are played by 12 year olds who are dressed up like Danny Terrio and do nothing but talk like New York Brooklyn with like these accents as they like shoot people with these like magnum revolvers and shit it is an insane movie, but then it gets to uh, a place called Edge City where they uh, hang out and it's just basically this one punk rock uh, city on the edge of oblivion to where it becomes a straight up musical in the middle of it to where there's a, a band called Sad and The Next. And then you get about to the halfway to like two thirds of through the movie. And then all of a sudden this woman appears in the middle of it um, and she just starts singing to the camera this like a uh, hair rock uh, like ballad and it just becomes like a music video for like a couple minutes. And you're watching, you're like, what the fuck am I even watching to try and sum up the plot like is kind of impossible because it has the same sort of like episodic feel as Six String Samurai. It's just these guys on their journey and the whole idea is that they may or may not have the keys to the last nuclear weapon on Earth the entire time. And so they're being sought after by a couple warring factions in Edge City so that they can have uh, the last nuclear weapon. Um, oh, and there's a giant uh, sewer rat at one point that comes <laughs> out of the sewer. And I'm talking about as big as this room. Okay. Like so it's, it's not like a rat of unusual size princess bread. So no, no, no. This is like a Kaiju rat. This is oh. like a graveyard shift rat. Slash no, no, bat. no. Be Ka- bigger. Kaiju rat. Oh, full like, yeah. You only see the head. It's Shit. huge. Um, but this movie is totally nuts. It's, uh, it's a little unfortunate in terms of like backstory because apparently Pune was taken off the movie. Um, like a lot of his films had some very troubled production histories. But this one, apparently he was taken off either halfway or two thirds of the way through. Um, and a insurance bondsman like basically oversaw the rest of shooting until it was done. But you watch it and like if I didn't know that by reading about it or reading interviews with him or whatever, you would never know it. It feels 100% like a dark, dingy, messy Albert Pune movie that ends with that climactic, huge machine gun battle. Uh, George Kennedy shows up at one point. Um, It's nuts. It's awesome. It's all neon lit. It's all scored by like... This weird, it's funny that we bring up Streets of Fire earlier, but it has this awesome kind of mix of like big ballad, like hair metal stuff that's scoring it the whole time with like, and then also like new wave synthy stuff. And like it's 89 minutes that'll just blow your mind. Can we watch it together soon? Yeah, I've, I found a tape of it. Please, can we? I'd, I'd love to watch yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, I found. I actually, when we were watching Six String Samurai, I tracked down a tape for like 30 bucks oh, online yeah. because... Uh, I am up to get down. The only way I had seen it before was on 35 millimeter back in Philly at an exploitation festival um, that they programmed. They programmed this as, I believe, the second movie, if memory served correct. Um, but it melted the entire room 
uh, of human beings, especially when that when Sue Sad just appears and she literally starts singing the song called Guilty Pleasures. Uh, she's like wailing and weird. Like you just heard the whole auditorium go, holy shit, man. And it was like, it, it was awesome. Um, and there is, there's a dance number. Uh, I, I can't, Highest recommendation, total face melter. Like if we were certifying it as a face melter, this is this is what. Everything you're saying to me is just selling it more yeah. and more. So yes, I have a tape. We can watch it sometime. I'm on board, uh, Martin. So my, <laughs> I, I've been thinking about this all week. I've been trying to figure out because I had problems with the film, but it does like link up to so many other films on like a lot of different levels. Um, and I, for a while, was th- honestly thinking Cyborg was going to be my, my pick. Um, what if we both picked Albert Pune movies? That would be so awesome. It's why we're doing this podcast. Well, I, it's, I, I really actually love it that we're, <laughs> but I, I think I just figured it out sitting here. It's Street Trash. Oh, man. Street Trash is going to. That's gonna, a weird pick. I don't, I don't see it. Explain. So the reason I would would not be so much the subject matter. Yeah. But the feel of a first film kind of, kind of pulled together. Yeah, because um, that is a slapdash movie. That is a movie. Um, just a real quick explanation: those who haven't seen Street Trash, um, also a Pittsburgh film. Um, no, New York movie. Wasn't it Pittsburgh? No, it's Roy from. from You're Prince. right. Was it New York? It was New York. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, that is a New York grime movie. Yeah. So they. Basically, he it's, worked on. Uh, I think where you're making the Pittsburgh connection is because Roy. Helped make Document of the Dead, which was one of the great making of documentaries about Romero and Dawn of the Dead. And well, and then also, so the lead actor from Street Trash sat, Mike, Mike Lackey sat at my table at a restaurant I was working mm-hmm. in Atlanta. And we were, I said, oh, I was, I was making a horror film at the time. And we were just started chatting. He goes, oh, I was in horror film once. Never mm-hmm. heard of it. And I was like. Well, which one? He's like Street Trash. You haven't heard of him. I was like, I've I've seen Street Trash. He's like, Yeah, I was the lead. He's the lead hobo. Yeah, and well, and um, Roy, the director, to take it back to Romero too. He um, uh, he's the the machete zombie. In yes, that he gets the. He's the one who famously gets the machete in the face uh, from Savini's biker gang. Yeah, I believe. and the, the classic shot. Um, yeah, but for me, I think is the the he said the slapdash kind of feel of it yeah and for me I, I again not in terms of like the subject matter but definitely that feel but also has a kind of episodic feel where you have the over-the-top post-apocalyptic feel of the hobo land with the king right yeah and 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 this world they create there and there's but then there's also just this like hellscape of this urban hellscape um, there's also no like real plot exactly that's what I'm saying a very similar feel of like you get the idea that everyone's like striving to kind of stay alive yeah they just exist in a universe and you haven't even explained what this movie is about uh, it's about a, a liquor that called makes, Viper called Vi- Tenafly Viper that makes bums what did, explode Tena what Tenafly bu- Viper is that the name of that like, is it's about okay so and it's like, like, t- Tenafly is like a name it's not like a chemical yeah no it's this it's this fucking shitty little liquor store and this fat owner and he finds there. it in the back yeah well he finds it in like the basement yeah. basically opens it puts all of these little like flask size uh, bottles of the viper for a dollar for a dollar piece 
The hobos come in, start drinking it, and they literally explode and like, melt. Like, and they like melt. gory, like bags yes. of blood, oh, like, yeah. splatter, like Jackson well, Pollock. Like, but over they, the the, shop. there's one class where he melts into a toilet. The guy melts into a toilet, yeah. and there's a face that the cover of the DVD release. The guy's <laughs> face, like coming out of the toilet. It's so this movie shreds. I love it. It's also also a face melter. Only for like, literally, apparently, it's all yeah, li- quite literally. It's only for like five people though, because like I know people who love it. But it's also, it's very rapey, it's very weird, um, it's very uncomfortable and grimy, has some real, let's say, un-PC... I don't recommend it to a lot of people. Yeah, you gotta know a person. But if it's a secret handshake, though, it's like, like you said, a group you trust, that it's not gonna be like, I think you're a horrible person. It also has a play on the whole Romero, like, shopping spree sequence from Dawn of the Dead, where all the hobos go... Uh, to the grocery store to basically go and steal their groceries for the week. And it has like a black dude like shoving meat down his pants and, you know, like totally uh, grossing out like a little old white lady who's like, oh, my God. It's a very, at least it's a grimy film. It's gross. Yeah, it's gross. But uh, Cody, what's your pick? Oh, okay. Sorry. Had a blank there for a second. Uh, Blade of the Immortal came out 2017, oh, yeah. 2018. Oh, the Takashi Miike movie? Yeah. That's a good movie. I Go on. Uh, yeah. A, a seemingly invul- invulnerable. Well, he is invulnerable, but our, our hero in Six String is seemingly invulnerable. He's the best uh, fighter in the land. Death is afraid of him. Death uh, walks away from him in a bar, although I think maybe that has something to do with water, which we discover later on. Yeah. Um, and he is uh, tasked with the charter of a you know a younger individual that he has to do a job for, and he has to you know take her through the land on a revenge mi- revenge mission. Even though Six String is a revenge mission, it just uh, I I thought the comparison between a seemingly unkillable protagonist tasked with a ward carrying them through this war torn land, I thought it just played together. I really like that movie because it's Mike. Mike has like a couple different modes. Um, he's made a million fucking movies. He's made so over much spring. He's blood. made over a hundred movies, um, and you either have you know Gonzo Mike uh, with stuff like Ichi the Killer, um, Visitor Q, stuff like that, and then you have his more traditional samurai films. Thirteen Assassins. Oh man, Thirteen I love that Assassins. Movie so much. Stone masterpiece. <laughs> Um, and this movie kind of meets them in the middle. It's never quite as gonzo, except it's, as Cody it just noted, there, yeah. it's incredibly gory. Just buckets of blood being yeah. pumped through this thing. But there's almost like traditional uh, wuxia fight scenes in it, too, to where it's just two swordsmen like squaring off against one another and defying the laws of gravity and stuff. And like, I think that movie rips. It's a little long because it's like, what, two and a half hours long, if I remember right. I watched as the, the my I skipped the closing night movie of Fantastic Fest, whatever year that movie played at Fantastic Fest, uh, in favor of watching this. And to me, it was like the best way to close Fantastic Fest that year. That year because I was like, oh, a two and a half hour Takashi Miike samurai movie with apparently buckets of blood. I'm in. It runs I had uh, the most fun. It runs two hours twenty. Two twenty. Yeah. I knew I was in the ballpark. Yeah. Um, yeah, I just saw First Love after cause ooh, I, I didn't that's see a good one. I loved it. I didn't see it Fantastic Fest, but I, they brought it like through Alma, brought it back. You know, like when yeah. the, the kind of their showings and um, that sporting goods scene fight sequence is fucking awesome. That's worth the whole movie right there. That's that's one of his more 
I want to say toned down movies. Like it's very straightforward, almost like him making like a, um, uh, what was that old studio that used to make uh, like Kinji Fukasaku's movies, um, like Doberman Cop and stuff like that. But that that's what it very much reminded me of is that it was like Mike making like a Kinji Fukasaku, like uh, a Yakuza picture um, with a deaf boxer and a love story and but it's just nothing but Yakuza gangsters like going after each other. And then there's a weird animated sequence in it for like a split second. And so well, it has... those could play out well, like they did in uh, kill bill two. Well, kill this bill... is no, much quicker. It's like almost like a transition of like a, a car flying out of a building. And oh, okay. So it's just, just that nowhere. It doesn't stuff. have any, like, it yeah. almost felt like they didn't have the doesn't budget have to shoot the scene. Yeah, no, exactly. and it... <laughs> That's what I said too, is I was like, Oh my God, it's, it's almost like he ran out of money. It was just like fucking animated. Who gives a shit? It's going to be, awesome i uh my first day at fantastic fest last year i got i came for the second half mm-hmm. and i got there kind of early that day and Mike's just sitting there on the front stoop of the south lamar um south lamar theater uh alamo did he say something along the lines of you could lose all your money in there <laughs> i like nice we were this like as close as I am to you both now. Mm-hmm. And he was there with his wife and his, his translator, I believe. Which and is at least six feet apart. I would like to. Point uh, out. Yes. I did not. I was trying to think of the best thing to say to him. And then nothing came. So I didn't say anything to him. I literally had like 20 did minutes. Did he have sunglasses on? He did. Oh God. He looked so fucking cool. And I was just like trying to think of like what I wanted to say. Like not trying to come across as fanboy. And I decided just to say nothing, which I think probably, was probably better than some of the things. That wait, wait. So were say. you standing next to him for twenty minutes, not saying anything while you were trying to think of something? No, no, no. It was like I'm saying. I'm sitting. I'm sitting on the front stoop where he's across the way with, just, with his group. Okay. There's no one around. It's super early. Gotcha, it just happens gotcha. to be the, the four of us. And I was kind of like awkwardly looking at my phone. I, like, I had he's this like mood. sitting on that like uh, cement yeah. like, outer of the planet. Yeah, we're not we're not you're, together. You're, I'm you're just like, like I'm chair. close enough that I could be like, hey, I like your stuff, which I could have said, which I didn't even say that. Yeah. So I had this moment with You could have just Daniels. yelled his name and did a fist pump. You, uh. you, you could have. <laughs> I stood behind Jeff Daniels in a seven eleven once and wanted to yell like Will McAvoy and just to like piss him off. But like I was like, oh, I'm not gonna be that guy. <laughs> Should have just grabbed his butt. What okay. What's the last question, Cody? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it's actually, we have two more questions. This isn't the last one. Yeah. Uh, we're on question seven. The last one just ran a little. Martin, would you remake this today? Oh, that's right. Actually, I completely would. Yeah. Um, I... Could you? Who would be your picks? Uh, actor, uh, okay, uh, actor for lead and director. Just, just those two. Well, real quick, let me, let me... Sure. Let me pitch, like, how I would... Sure, sure, sure. Um, I was saying it while we were watching it. Um... Pitch, catch, run, slide, do it all. I... Watching it, I said, this is the kind of film, there was a time in Hollywood where still like like high concepts that if mm. you pitch someone hard, if this were a comic book, for instance, there was a time when they were buying up everything, like cowboys and aliens. Cowboys mm-hmm. versus aliens kind of thing, right? Where, I, I can't even. Where I think they would, I think this film could get made, but I would do it again. I would rewrite it with more of a through line. Like, the whole, like build out the whole world more of these other musicians have Iron Man in it. 
<laughs> sure. No, but like have, but pick just Iron Man's armor somewhere in the sand, just to pick, get, pick just, a, get, just to get some Marvel money. Pick yeah. a through line, though. Pick a through line. This is what we're going. Like this is the mission, and create everything around, like Streets of Fire, like mm. a more cohesive world with like. And the thing is, like again, with these high concept films back in like 2009 or 10, they would throw 80 million dollars at this movie. It would be dumb, but like films like Priest. With oh, uh, yeah. Paul Bettany, which had like the comic book sold nothing, but we're like, oh, it's a comic book though. We're gonna we're gonna make it. Yeah, and they made spent way too much on it. Uh, I would do that. So to answer your question, Cody. Um, Director and main character. So like main character, I, I would do our boy Scott Adkins. We were talking about Ooh. last time. Um, a, he's a badass, and B, I think he actually has the look. I could see him wearing Buddy Holly glasses. Would you let him use his uh, real accent? Yes, or I would. would he do the American one? I think he's got a cool voice. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I would just have him be foreign, and they would not explain it. Mm-hmm. And um, and then for director... Oh, man, that's hard. I would... Uh, Richard Stanley's back, so I'd ask Richard Stanley to come in and direct the uh, $100 million remake of Six Dream Samurai. There you go. And you could get, like, there would be the company that actually would produce that is you could go to somebody like Spectre Vision yep. with, like, Elijah Wood and Daniel Noah and those guys. Mm-hmm. And, like, they would make this type of movie. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. So I, I think it's where, I think and there's elements here that I said, man, like, I could see if this were, like, more connected, I would like it a lot more. Sure. With more of a budget. So, yeah. There you go. Is it my turn? It's your turn. No. no. I wouldn't remake this. Not because I don't think you can remake it or you should remake it. Um, I think it's because this is clearly the product of one person or two people in this case. Um, and that's what makes it special. And perhaps it's why it became a video store classic for so long and even resonates with you like to this day is that like it's the reason why repo man belongs to alex cox it's the reason why el topo belongs to you know alejandro jodorowsky um or any of these or even like you could we were just talking about romero it's why the dead movies like belong to romero they're they like nobody else could have made this movie because it it this was clearly the product of someone who had thought about this for a long time and obviously wanted to do it above all things because like, like this guy made this movie and then he made the crow wicked prayer. And then he hasn't done a whole lot since then. He's got like a production company, right? Yeah, He's got his own production company. He just made, um, I believe a movie about like Russian psychic spying last year. Um, that's like so a it's the Russian version of the men who stare at goats. Uh, I don't know. But like, <laughs> um, my point is more like this was this guy's vision and to remake it. It's almost like, um, I'm trying to think of a very, con- okay. Even though the Suspiria remake is great. It's sort of how I felt about when they announced that they were even going to attempt remaking Suspiria. Because to me, what makes Suspiria isn't the witches. It's not, the plot it's not the ballet it's the it's argento like that movie came from argento's like the darkest parts of his like weird cerebral cortex and like that that's why you don't remake a movie like that now it takes a great filmmaker like luca guananino to to remake that and re- but he remade that movie into 
a Luca Guadagnino movie. Like and the screenwriter too, taking yeah. a whole different tack. Yeah, like it's just if you were to remake Six Screen Samurai, like I would, I would more appreciate that to where it's just like it's someone taking the very basics of the concept and just doing their own thing. All right, I like that. Um, I would remake it. Um, I would do it either with Edgar Wright. All right, that could be interesting. Or. Uh, I just looked up this guy's name and I forgot it already. Um, the guy who directed uh, the 2012 Dread. Oh, Pete, Pete Travis. Yeah, Dread's awesome. But didn't it come out that Garland really like ghost that's, directed? That's that the movie? story that he directed. Whoever most of made it. that one, I would so want. I would, I would want them to do the remake of this. I feel like that follows like a very like you know a, a to B. There's just a trajectory. There's not a whole lot underneath it. It's just a a, a pure action driven kind of thing and it's done very stylistically and brilliant and who are we talking about when we watched it i can't think of his name right now he's a popular actor he's been in a million fucking things like la Confidential. oh he looks like guy pierce yeah I would, I would put guy pierce in the lead and then i would have john claude van damme play death Ooh. and i would have the most epic yeah. choreographed martial arts fight scene in the end of the man death that day. would be awesome and van damme's like back now i mean like he's no. he's having a quite the resurgence last also five years looks like death i know that's what i was gonna say you don't even have to put makeup on him <laughs> he yeah. just give him a slash hat and he's let him had, let him kick away he wears his hard-lived life uh, on every inch of his body he i remember sure seeing expendables 2 with my friend and the whole time every time he showed up my friend goes Woof! Like every time he shows, and that's like a while ago now. Even then, it's like he was Whoa, a he was uh, a pretty boy back in the day. Yeah, well, and I now mean, he's got just chasms in his face. Well, and he even made a movie that literally commented on that with JCVD. I yeah, love yeah, that yeah, movie. yeah. So, but I mean, uh, Universal Soldier: Day of Reckoning is another one to where it's it's literally he uses that to represent the notion of like post traumatic stress and like what war does to like an individual. So like he knows it. He lives yep. it. And it works for him. And it works. Yeah. I like the Dread thing, though. I think that's like, A, I really love that movie. Whoever directed it, I love Dread. Yeah. And obviously, it's like their version of The Raid. Sure. Um, like, they didn't even try to hide it. It's so good. Yeah. And The Raid's amazing, too. I would Weren't also... they made at the same time, though? Right. I believe Dread was right after The Raid. Mm. Yeah. We're going to have to do some research. Yeah. But, I mean, I'm saying, even if it wasn't influenced, it's the same you know idea. Yeah, same idea. Yeah. Um, and Garrett... Evans, yes, I think would be an interesting off of that too. Another person to kind of possibly direct this, yeah. If you want to go full tilt action the whole time, yeah. So my other thinking was uh, Edgar Wright in a like uh, a lighter hearted like Scott Pilgrim versus mm. kind of kind I can of see that style. All right. So, what's our last question? Are we certifying this as a face? Martin, a face is it a certified face melter? Actually, I would say yes. Um, wow. I. Didn't here's I'm gonna try and correct Go me for if, it. Correct me if I'm wrong here. In terms of did I love the film? No. In terms of if you showed it to a certain person, could it melt their face? Yes. I think it has the elements of hitting someone at a certain angle at the right time, like it did for you. Yeah, it's a face sure. melter. But if you want to say in terms of did it melt my face, it did not melt my face. But in terms of could it be does it have the elements of a face melter? I would say yes. Okay. No, Mr. Knight. It's not. No, it's interesting. Uh, it's clearly the product of one filmmaker. Um, it would probably play decently with an audience. Face melter. No, it just. 
the pacing fucks it up. Like it doesn't like that's the the one of the main differences I watched or or I noticed watching Radioactive Dreams today is that like Radioactive Dreams like it was over and I was literally like holy shit that's it like I thought this movie was longer than that yeah. to where like there were moments in Six String Samurai to where I was like okay just, just counting the minutes yeah, yeah let's let's get this over with um, but no unfortunately it it interesting film unique film falls short of the face melter. Uh, certification for me i will i'll say yes and no i'll say yes for night that's that's a good i can i'll say because i'm time traveling i will say yes for 19 year old cody it it melted his face because just as we'd classified it in the last episode it's not necessarily something it's relentless action that we're saying is a face melter it's something that changed your perspective sure and it, okay, it, it, def- it definitely changed my perspective as a 19 year old impressionable martial artist who used to be into power rangers and then still into anime so it uh i i loved every aspect about it then and i watched it every day for like a week even though i wasn't always fully watching it and it it made me believe that i could make a similar film and that it was possible to be a filmmaker even though i never pursued that it it gave me the idea that it was possible where beforehand it seemed out of reach. So I would say it definitely changed my perspective. There you go. Well, that wraps up uh, episode number two of the secret handshake podcast on 1998's six string samurai. Cody. Thank you. Yes, sir. Martin. Fuck you. Thank you. That's, that's actually his job. Yeah, you're right. Mattress King. Bringing it, bring a full circle. We'll see you next week.